Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the upcoming election. Now, if you're currently asking yourself, wait, what election? (laughs) That's perfectly understandable. Austin's upcoming election will be held on May 1st, which is a Saturday, and a fairly obscure time to be hosting an election at all. But I promise you this election is super important to the future of our city and actually includes some pretty interesting items, including propositions on everything from homelessness to the power of our mayor. Uh, But first things first, a few basics for you. Early voting for this election lasts from April 19th through April 27th. And like I said, Election Day is on May 1st. You can find more info about voting info, like where the polling places are, things like that, at votetravis.com or wilco.org. And if you live in the city of Austin, you'll have eight propositions on your ballot. Propositions deal with specific policy proposals, which you'll have to decide if you're for or against. So over the next few weeks, we'll be releasing podcast episodes based on each of these propositions. First up, we're going to be covering Props A and B. Prop A is all about the Austin Firefighters Association and the way their contracts are negotiated. Here's the ballot language for Prop A. Quote, Shall the city charter be amended to give the Austin Firefighters Association, Local 975 of the International Association of Firefighters, the authority to require the city to participate in binding arbitration of all issues in dispute with the association, if the city and the association reach impasse in collective bargaining negotiations, end quote. Basically, what that means is that if this proposition passes, the next time the Austin Firefighters Association, which serves as the union for our city's firefighters, renegotiates its contract with the city, um, if an agreement can't be reached during that process, an independent arbitrator will be brought in to settle the dispute, and both sides must abide by that decision. To tell us more about Prop A and how it could impact the vast majority of Austinites who aren't actually firefighters, um, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Bob Nix, who's president of the Austin Firefighters Association. Okay, here it is. The Firefighters Association, you all, you know, serve as the union, basically, for firefighters in Austin. And how does it work? Like, every few years, do you meet with the city to hash out a new contract or agreement? What's kind of the, the underlying process there? Yeah, so we are we are what's known as civil, we're under civil service law, police, fire, and EMS are in the city of Austin. The citizens adopted that many years ago. And the Austin firefighters are under an additional provision uh, called collective bargaining that we, uh, the citizens voted in for us in uh, the fall of 2004. And so basically we can bargain around what the civil service law says through our negotiations and allow the city to add value to what they can accomplish at the table by changing these laws if they need to, to make them more localized. And uh, of course, um, you know, on our side, we, we want uh, safe working conditions and, and competitive salaries and benefits. So sometimes those things come to an impasse. In fact, the last six bargaining cycles, they've been at an impasse three times and almost a fourth time this last session. Remember, police and EMS went to impasse and fire didn't, but we were close. Uh, so we think it's, it's better to not be at an impasse, but to get that dispute solved so you can move on down the road, kind of restore labor management peace and get the issue, uh, get an answer on the issue. 
Yeah, and a great example locally is San Antonio. San Antonio uh, Fire Union uh, got brought in arbitration a couple of years ago, and I actually got to sit in all 10 sessions of that. And they were, we're not in a contentious labor management dispute, but they were in a seven-year, very contentious labor management dispute. Wow. And through their bonding arbitration process, both sides, management labor, after the result, came out and declared a win. And rather than wasting time and money and legal expenses and, and other expenses, we, we, you know, it, it, the problem gets solved. Right. And, and a lot of people ask, you know, so how do we know the arbitrator is a fair, independent person? And so in our, in our city charter amendment, um, which is what this is, Prop A, it's a city charter amendment, um, we, we ask for a, basically a, a company that, that basically has uh, resumes of different arbitrators. They will assemble a list of nine, and then management labor starts striking off the, uh, the different arbitrators. You get down to that neutral person. Mm. And uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of studies on this stuff where people are more wonky on it, but... Uh, Binding arbitration has done a lot in the private sector and the public sector, but a lot in the private sector. And what these studies indicate is people are less likely to go to impasse when there's binding arbitration. They, they would rather work it out at the table when they know the alternative is another person might make the decision for you. So it, it, people behave better at the table. They, they seem to talk more about their interest and, and, and work through the problems. And also, you know, another thing sometimes people think is, well, binding arbitration could give, could be high wages for firefighters or, or benefits could be so rich that the city can't afford it. And, and what the studies show is there is no upward bias on wages and benefits with binding arbitration. There is somewhat for negotiations in general, but not for binding arbitration, just gets the problem solved. So that's the Austin Firefighters Association's take on Prop A. Obviously, they're in support of Frappe. In fact, it's only on the ballot because the AFA gathered the 20,000 signatures necessary to put it on the ballot. Um, on the other hand, some have raised concerns that bringing binding arbitration into the contract negotiation process could give the city less control over a very important part of its budget, which is firefighter salaries and benefits. This is of particular concern these days as city budgets are becoming increasingly tight. A recent opinion story from the New York Times about the power of police unions in uh, Suffolk County, New York, notes, quote, In 1974, police officers and firefighters in New York got an additional boost from a new provision in the civil service law that gave them compulsory binding arbitration if they reached an impasse in contract dispute. Other unions didn't get that. Since then, the average salaries of the police and firefighters have risen far faster than other government employees and well above the rate of inflation, according to E.J. McMahon of the Empire Center for Public Policy, end quote. Of course, that was a story about New York, not Austin, but cities have expressed concerns over binding arbitration in Texas as well. In San Antonio, where binding arbitration was recently used to settle a years-long contract dispute with its firefighters, city manager Eric Walsh said, quote, We believe the arbitration panel reached an award that was fair to both firefighters and taxpayers. However, we hope that this marks the first and only time that the city and its public safety unions use binding arbitration to reach a collective bargaining agreement. We would prefer to negotiate contracts with our public safety unions at the bargaining table. End quote. So that's basically Prop A. Now on to Prop B. Here's the ballot language for that. Quote, Shall an ordinance be adopted that would create a criminal offense and a penalty for sitting or lying down on a public sidewalk 
were sleeping outdoors in and near the downtown area and the area around the University of Texas campus, create a criminal offense and penalty for solicitation, defined as requesting money or another thing of value at specific hours and locations, or for solicitation in a public area that is deemed aggressive in manner, create a criminal offense and penalty for camping in any public area not designated by the Parks and Recreation Department, end quote. So what the heck does that mean? It's kind of a mouthful. Um, But Prop B is basically all about Austin's homelessness ordinances. If you've lived here for a few years, you might remember that back in 2019, Austin City Council voted to basically overturn its previous bans on sitting, lying down, and camping in public spaces. These are ordinances or rules that the city had previously had in place for decades. And the change came after a 2017 city audit found that these ordinances created barriers for people trying to exit homelessness because they led to criminal records and arrest warrants, which in turn made it more difficult to access housing. The audit also found that other cities have been sued over their camping bans because when shelters are full, as as Austin's often are, people have no way to comply with it. So anyway, after city council overturned our camping ban in 2019, The change was pretty immediate and highly visible throughout the city. All of a sudden, tents started popping up in underpasses and along roadways. And in turn, this produced a lot of concerns about safety and impact on tourism and local businesses from some in the Austin community, which basically led us to where we are today. A group called Save Austin Now gathered the necessary 20,000 signatures to get Prop B put on the ballot. And if passed, Prop B will reinstate the homeless ordinances Austin had in place before 2019. Um, With one additional change, if Prop B passes, it will actually expand the area where sitting, lying down, and sleeping in public, even if it's not in a tent, is forbidden in the city of Austin. Our previous ordinances prohibited sitting, lying down, primarily in the downtown area. Um, The new ordinances would prohibit it downtown as well as up past the University of Texas to 38th Street. Camping, though, would still be banned throughout the entire city. Um, I'm just going to say right now that Prop B is the most controversial and hotly debated proposition on the ballot this May. The only other one that comes close is Prop F, but we'll get to that later. Um, And because of this, emotions and misinformation are running really, really high. Uh, Personally, I've been working on this episode for weeks and keep delaying publishing it because yet another issue pops up that I want to dig deeper into or I see another study I want to read or another person I feel like I should interview. In other words, it's been a lot of rabbit holes. Um, So what I want to do on today's episode is bring you along on a bit of that journey down into the rabbit hole, share with you the perspectives of some of the many Austinites I've spoken to about Prop B, and then provide you with as much info as I can so that you can digest it all and make your own decision about how to vote. Uh, So that's the plan. (laughs) Okay, so first up, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with Matt Malika, who is the executive director of the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition often referred to as ECHO. ECHO is a nonprofit organization that serves as the lead agency that plans and implements community-wide strategies to end homelessness in Austin and Travis County. And they do this by working closely with government departments and lots of local nonprofits that serve our homeless community. ECHO also conducts our city's annual point in time count, which is kind of like a census for a homeless community and reports how many people are currently experiencing homelessness in Austin, as well as key demographic information. Okay, here's that interview with Matt. 
Okay, I'm here with Matt and we're going to be talking about homelessness and uh, Prop B today. I think, you know, to start, maybe if, if you could just give us the high level explanation of um, what Prop B is <laughs> and what people will be voting on um, in May here. Yeah, sure. So Prop B, uh, you know, in summary is a ballot initiative that looks to ban uh, camping and sleeping and lying in parts of downtown and the UT campus, um, sort of making it a, a criminal offense to do those things. Right. And um, I'm wondering if you can give folks a little bit of history or background, because this has been um, the legality of these things has been a little bit in flux lately. So um, a version of these rules we we had in Austin, right, up until about two or three years ago. Can you give people a little bit of a refresh there? Yeah, sure. So in the summer of 2019, um, the Austin City Council took steps to sort of um, decriminalize homelessness uh, in Austin, Travis County. So what that means is they made it uh because we didn't have enough space for people to go, we didn't have enough shelter beds or housing for people. They made it legal for folks to get their basic needs met in public spaces. So if they needed to sleep, um, lay down, eat um, in areas that in the past had been, um, it had been illegal to do that. They made that um, legal through an ordinance change. Um, and I you know a lot of other communities have taken those steps and some communities haven't. So um, you've seen litigation in in Boise, Idaho, that um, sort of like a precursor to this, saying that if we don't have any place for people to be, we can't make it a criminal offense to have them get their basic needs met in public spaces. And I'd also just say, I think, you know, in, in still to this day, you know, we do have no camping ordinances here in Austin that, you know, that exist. And so just in certain places, so in parks and along trails, um, just to name a few, and then within certain distance of um, the street on sidewalks and to not be able to block the public right of ways. And so there are there's some things in place currently right now. Yeah, I wonder if you can explain a little bit more of like what the rules are right now. I know that there's been some back and forth in city council and things were maybe slightly adjusted. And um, I think there is a lot of confusion about what is legal and what isn't. What kind of where where do we stand right now? Do you? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I don't have the current ordinances in front of yeah. me, so I don't want to miss or, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, mislabel anything. But essentially, you know, it is still it, it is still illegal and enforceable for the police to um, to not allow camping in parks, um, on public trails, um, and, and in um, within a certain distance of the street on the sidewalk. And then also, um, you know, I believe, and I'd have to go back and check the exact language, but it also the, the sidewalks need to be passable. So there needs to be a certain amount of distance on the sidewalk for folks to be able to get um, to use to access the sidewalk safely. So, um, you know, there are, um, you know, there are obviously, you know, there's not allowed to be camping that takes up an entire sidewalk and makes the public spaces unusable for mm -hmm. uh, other members of the public. The idea is um, that they are public spaces and they need to be able to be enjoyed by by everyone. I, I wonder, you know, since since you work for Echo and, and um, are working with and serving, um, you know, our homeless neighbors, can you, I, I wonder if you can give us kind of an overview of the state of homelessness in in Austin. I know this isn't um, something that 
your organization works on it and, and actively studies, you know, I think there's a lot of confusion about how many people are homeless in our city and um, what are some of the main drivers or, or causes of homelessness in Austin and is homelessness rising? You know, can you maybe touch on some of those basics? Yeah, sure. So it's an interesting time. And, um, and I think obviously with COVID, the impact of COVID is not yet to be fully understood and seen in, in our homeless response system. You know, we have eviction, um, you know, moratoriums in place and other things that are, um, you know, on the federal level and certainly on the local level, which is kept, which have kept some people in their units, even though they can't, um, you know, they haven't been able to pay rent because of the, because of COVID and the economic um, downturn our, our, our nation's faced. So we don't, I mean, I would hesitate, I'd hesitate to say that, you know, we have a good grasp of what's to come um, yet, because I think there's a, it's a really ever evolving environment. What I will say is Austin is um, really from, for a lot of reasons, um, sort of in a bit of a, um, it's sort of at, at the front door of uh, what potentially could be a catastrophic event. You know, I think we have a really, a lack of affordable housing units in this community. Um, we are, you know, as far as affordability in the, across the country, we are the, you know, the least affordable city um, in the country right now. Um, we have one affordable housing unit for every 114 households that need one. Um, wow. We have, uh, we have had historically um, a hard time building affordable housing in our community. Um, and so we have a lot working against us in terms of like being able to, um, you know, impact um, homelessness for, for Austinites and for, for folks who have been in Austin for generations. We have a, an influx of a lot of new uh, business coming in, a lot of high earning business and high earners and potential for high earning, a lot of new construction for units, but not a lot of um, affordable, you know, none of those units required affordable, you know, it's a big, um, you know, big gap in affordability there. So I think, you know, what we, what we're currently seeing um, in our community right now is we have, you know, we have a high rate of unsheltered homelessness um, and that has a lot to do with, um, you know, displacement of local, you know, um, legacy Austinites in our community. Um, you know, we know that more than 70% of the people experiencing homelessness in our community experienced homelessness for the first time in Austin. They had um, previously been housed here in Austin. That's a big statistic that I think there's a misnomer that folks are getting bussed in from other communities. It's just simply not true. Um, and I think, you know, we, we need to do a better job of understanding um, how race has played a role and racism has played a role in our, in our community um, and how that's impacted our population of people experiencing homelessness. We have a um, you know, 38% of people in our homeless response system are Black African American. That's 8% of the total, you know, we have 8% total population. Those are huge disproportionalities. Um, you know, if you're Black in Austin, you're 4.8 times more likely to become homeless than, than someone who's white. That's just staggering. Um, and it's not just Austin that has, you know, those, that types of, those types of numbers, but Austin is uh, above and beyond um, what other communities are when it comes to seeing the disproportionate race um, data. So, um, you know, really, uh, I think what, what we're really focused on and what, need, what we need to be focused on is trying to get 
um, you know, more housing online here for extremely low income and rent burdened families. Yeah, I want to talk some about the solutions to homelessness. You know, I think that for a lot of folks, especially um, if you've lived in the cities for a long time, homelessness begins feel like this is something every city has and this is a, a fact of life. And I think we get a little anesthetized to it. Um, you know, when you, when you look at models of how we can truly solve homelessness or um, house more people, where, where are the best practices or what in your dream world, you know, what can we really do to start to um, get more people housed and, and make some progress? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, you know, homelessness is a really complicated, um, you know, why people experiencing homeless, experience homelessness. It's very varied. It happens for a lot of different reasons. But what we do know is, you know, um, you know, any move towards economic justice or, you know, education justice or, um, certainly housing justice and, um, you know, and, um, you know, criminal justice reform, all those things and sort of taking a look at a holistic view at how all of those systems impact homelessness in our community is, is important. So best practices and communities that do it really well are able to understand where their inflows are, right? Like, so where, where are people coming into our homeless response system and where, you know, how are they, um, how are they entering homelessness and what are the factors there? So you look at housing affordability, you look at getting priced out of your home, you look at access to um, transportation and jobs, and you look at, um, you know, the gentrification of, of communities for that. You look at people coming out of the criminal justice system, you look at access to quality affordable health care, of which, you know, Texas is one of nine non-expansion states now, I think, and we have a Medicaid gap of 1.4 million people across the state that would that would have access to quality health care, affordable health care if we were to expand Medicaid. And I think, you know, all of those things kind of roll up into, um, you know, a lot of, you know, what, what increases homelessness in communities. And so you end up, you know, end up having this scenario where people are coming into our system at higher rates than we can house them. Um, and then, you know, you look at a fed, you know, on the federal level, we've seen massive disinvestment, a lot of disinvestment across the last couple of decades of just not having the right amount of the right type of investment in homelessness. And so I think we have a lot of work to do and advocacy to do in that end as well. But, you know, Austin, you know, also, I think, you know, we have a lot of things we do really well here as a homeless response system. We're, we're housing folks at a high rate and at a, at a quick rate. We've housed more folks each year over the last four years. Um, um, and, you know, we're, we're starting to connect, um, you know, better connect to the private uh, sector and to um, helping folks understand that the response is going to take a community level response. This isn't just one entity that's going to, you know, it can't just be HUD. It can't just be the city of Austin. It can't just be Travis County. Um, it can't just be the business community. It has to be everybody working together and sort of moving in, you know, um, rowing the boat in the same direction. And so we're starting to make a lot of progress there in, in, um, in bringing, the, bringing, you know, all of our partners, community partners to the table. Um, you know, one thing that's happened, I think, obviously, it's been a big talking point for folks over the last couple of years. But people are a lot close, more closely aligned on, on wanting to see, um, you know, an end to homelessness and how that would look than I think the political nature of the discussion has lent, its, lent itself to. Um, it really is something that I think our community is, um, is ready to solve in a meaningful way.
Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point. I was going to ask about that. I think one thing that I do see a lot is, you know, a lot of people who I think do want to solve homelessness, right? And and see people who are sleeping outside and are very compassionate about that. And, and it upsets them deeply that their city is this way. And at the same time, I sometimes also see those people saying, well, we need to reinstate the camping ban because these people should not be sleeping on the street. And I, you know, some, who knows what people's motivations are, but some percentage of those people, I think truly their thought is, well, they, they shouldn't be sleeping on the street. They should have a place to live. Like, what do you say to those people or how, you know, like, because it feels like, okay, well, what's the solution there? You know, you have people who are ready to, who want to do something, but is what's the right thing? Yeah. So the, you know, we, we shouldn't have people sleeping on the street. Um, We should not have people sleeping unsheltered in our community. That I think is one thread that you could pull through our entire community and have very few, if any, people say that they think people should be living unsheltered in our street on our streets. And so that there's common ground there for everyone. I think it's just a, you know, we believe, I think Echo's, you know, Echo understands, and I think our community partners understand that um, you know, criminalizing homelessness is just throws up more barriers to people experiencing homelessness, accessing the housing that they need. We need to house people, we need to provide housing opportunities to folks. And we need to do it quickly. We need to be urgency around it. Um, and we we need to, um, you know, we need to get people off the street and I think and into housing, the housing that works for them. And so, you know, we agree that, that people shouldn't sleep unsheltered in our community. We absolutely agree with that. I think it's just, there is a lot of, a um, lot of, there's a, there's a little bit of a disconnect around how that happens, you know, and, and I think people want to see it happen quickly and we want to see it happen quickly. Um, homelessness is not something that just all of a sudden happened to our community. It's been happening for decades in this country. And um, I think it's going to take a little bit um, more of a systemic, like long-term response to get people um, and ensure that we don't have people sleeping on our streets. And, we, and while that happens and while we, while we put that response together and while we resource that response, we have to be really careful not to do more harm. And that's, that's a really important piece is that the, the, the more and more policy we have that does harm to people experiencing homelessness, the harder and longer it will take to resolve their, their homelessness. Right. Reinstating a camping ban or recriminalizing homelessness doesn't mean that people won't be camping outside still. Right. I mean, they still will. They just won't be in a public visible spot. No, absolutely. And, you know, they, uh, and, you know, honest, I'll be honest, like, you know, they, even when we had the ordinances in place, you had people in public in visible spots. And the the things that would happen is that that they would get, you know, the, they would get encountered by the police. Um, You know, they may, there were were a lot of tickets written for a period of time. People ended up with warrants and we're still trying to resolve warrants for people who just had a trespass or a, a, a loitering charge based on where they were camping or sleeping and um, and now when they do have a housing resource available to them, the, the property owner or property manager is saying, well, how come you, still, you have this warrant and not housing folks and not providing access to units um, based on tickets that were written, you know, two, three, four years ago. So it's a, it's a bit of a cycle. I mean, it's, there's a lot of research out there that shows people remain homeless for longer in cities that have, um, you know, criminal 
um, ordinances in place around around public camping. So we, we just want to make sure that we don't do more harm here. Right. And, and so you're kind of touching on it there. But, you know, with Prop B, we actually do have this a rare thing that you don't always get with props where we know what the, you know, we have been in Austin, we've lived under both types of ordinances. So we, we actually have a place to look as far as what the impact is um, for your organization, you know, working closely with homeless individuals, what was the impact of criminalizing homelessness? You know, what can you, can you talk a little bit about what you saw under those ordinances and the change? Yeah. I mean, it's our, so our folks are, um, you know, it's, it further ostracizes people. It adds trauma. Um, it, it's, you know, it adds uncertainty to their lives when they feel like they're going to be consistently moved around from place to place to place. It's harder to connect them to services and healthcare when they are eligible for those things because we don't know where they'll be from day to day from an outreach perspective. Um, you know, certainly with the new CDC guidance and under, um, you know, disrupting encampments is something that the federal government has said is a bad public health policy. Um, so there's a lot of concern there. And now that we're at that, that we're, we sort of have, you know, possible vaccination opportunities for folks, we know that if, you know, when we're starting to figure out and plan for that, if people are getting moved around, like, you know, being able to coordinate vaccines for people experiencing homelessness will be really difficult um, in our community. And so, yeah, I think, but I think going back, you know, to pre-2019, um, and I wasn't here in Austin during that time, but I was in a community that did, that does have camping bans in place in Denver, Colorado. And I know it just, it adds to, um, you know, folks feeling less than human in spaces um, and feeling ostracized from their community. So, um, part of ending homelessness and a key part of it is to ensure that folks feel like they can trust and connect to their community and that they want, you know, that, that the community welcomes them back in and, and finds places for them to be um, and housing for them to be in and um, connects them to, you know, broader community work that's happening. And, you know, when we have, a, when we criminalize homelessness, we end up with um, folks who feel ostracized from that community we end up with um, continued trauma and uncertainty, um, poor health outcomes and poor housing outcomes. And, um, you know, that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, it's, it's like I said before, it's really like, we know they're not in good, a good situation currently, but we don't want to do continued harm um, to them in, in, their, in their situation. Right. It is a moral an ethical tragedy that we have homelessness in our country. It's just a, it's a stain on our country. It's just, um, uh, it shouldn't, we shouldn't have it. Um, it shouldn't exist. The fact that it exists, um, you know, some of the benefits I think that we, that we've, the benefits, the wrong word, some of the things that have happened over the last yeah. year, then um, that, that having ordinances the way that written the way they are, um, we've seen no outbreaks of, no big outbreaks of COVID in our unsheltered population because we're not moving folks around and scattering folks throughout the community. We've seen more folks connect to healthcare and supportive services than before. We've been able to get people food, um, you know, when and access to water and hygiene in ways that we weren't wouldn't have been able to do had um, criminal um, ordinances been in place for homelessness. And so, we've really managed to better service and keep those folks safe. Um, during a global pandemic, which is a huge, big deal for us. Um, obviously, our health and safety is important. Um, 
experience, people experiencing homelessness are more likely to have a negative impact from COVID. We know that they have more underlying health conditions. They have, you know, they can't access um, the field of social distance or quarantine or any of those things. So that's really important. We, we think we saved a lot of lives by having, by having and not disrupting the encampments. And so that's, that's a really important aspect of what's been going on over the last year. And, and just because it's happening in a global pandemic, that's a key thing for public health, regardless of if there's a global pandemic. So a lot of things, the way things spread, just in general, um, you can talk to public health professionals that are smarter than, than I about this, but it's really important that, um, that we, we don't move people around um, for, for no reason, really, for lack of um, being able to offer them a, a resource, so. Yeah, and, and just to close, um, for folks who are Austinites who are um, concerned about homelessness, want to help be part of the solution, um, what are some things you recommend um, you know, a regular person can do to get involved in either advocacy or direct service, or how can people help? Yeah, great. Um, great question. Thanks. Um, so we have a partner page on our website at austinecho.org. Um, you can go in and see we have over 100 partners that we that are working to end homelessness in our community. We have direct service providers. Um, we have employment, you know, specialists. We have how people who provide housing, affordable housing. Really a great way to connect and take a look at like how you want to impact homelessness in your community. Um, donate to those organizations. You know, financially of course is helpful, but your time, um, you know, in kind donations, whatever you can do um, to support and and you know also take some time and get educated. Go on Echo's website, read about, we have a lot of different reports that we put out about homelessness in our community. Take your time to read them, connect with Echo if you have any questions about that. We have an info at page where you can put, you, you know, you can ask questions about the reports you're reading and we'll provide responses and um, just really education and then get involved with a partner organization that's doing great work. Okay, so that was Matt. I started with him because he works directly with our local homeless population and with other nonprofits who provide direct services to the homeless. Now we're going to shift gears a bit and hear from more advocacy-oriented organizations, both for and against Prop B. Before we do that, I want to set the stage a bit and let you know upfront that we're about to hear some pretty contradictory statements from our guests. Some big points of disagreement include whether or not people choose to live on the streets, the public safety implications of allowing citywide camping, the root causes of homelessness, and the size of our homeless population. For the most part, I'm just going to let our guests speak for themselves on this. I think they make their arguments pretty clear, and you'll be able to weigh them fairly easily for yourself. But I also do want to clear up a few factual points, which I'll get to after you hear from our next two guests, so stay tuned for that. Um, first, we're going to hear from Cleo Patricic. Cleo is the co-founder of Save Austin Now, which is the group that's been organizing around reinstating the city's camping ban and uh, gathered those 20,000 signatures necessary to put Prop B on the ballot. Uh, Cleo is also a Democrat. Her other co-founder of Save Austin Now is Matt Makoviak, uh, who is the chairman of the Travis County Republican Party. Other leaders of Save Austin Now include Ken Cassidy, who is the president of the Austin Police Association, and Joelle McNew, who's president of the UT parent org, Safe Horns. All right, let's give that a listen. No one is against homeless. 
Homelessness is not a crime. However, the way that the city council has rolled this out has been an abject failure. They rolled this out without a plan in place in June 2019. And in fact, just a month ago, the mayor said he admits this, this has been a failure. And he, he, he in the new, in the statesman article, he said, um, you know, we would like community input about a, a better plan. I'm like, well, that should have happened a year and a half ago. Uh, all these victims of crime uh, in the encampments and surrounding and the lack of resources. Um, not to mention the amount of people that froze to death. Uh, medical examiners are identifying now 55 unidentified people that were that froze to death. Who are the? I would like for the city council to address that. Who are these people that froze to death in our streets because of city council's lack of planning on how to take care of the what they unleashed June 2019? Mm-hmm. I think you know you're getting to an interesting point here. And I I hear like both sides of this, you know, like um, around around the freeze, you know, I I interviewed some other folks who work with homeless, you know, homeless individuals. And they said that this lack of a camping ban was a good thing during the freeze because they were able to easily find homeless people who are homeless because they were in, you know, kind of centralized locations around town or visible locations. And they could go and bring them to hotels so that they would be safe during the freeze. Now, of course, they're still living on the street all the time. Seems like where you're getting at. But I guess that's the that's the tricky part. Or I'm, I'm wondering what your take is on yeah, it is, I, is I just, how do we keep homeless people, you know, in our city safe? Right. While also obviously keeping the rest of the city safe as right. well. It's it, for me, I just I do not agree with that because it's a compliance issue. And from my understanding, the majority of them turned down uh, moving or going somewhere. Uh, the, from the, from June and August, I met with the mayor, you know, we had a a meeting at his office, me and a couple other group members. And, you know, he's failed to address those who do not want housing, do not want rules, do not want direct treatment, mental health. What is his plan for that? because that right there is the crux of the majority of the problem here. Um, not all homeless people are criminals or are, are engaging in criminal behavior using drugs, um, but they're, for them to deny reality that there is a criminal element, there, is, there has been an increase in uh, violent crime in the last past year, it has increased. Uh, the murder rate has increased, it's like, what the whole uh, year was, it's already at that point or something. It's something, a high number, and it's it's astronomical, but this was predicted in June um, when we had Officer Dion uh, come in from San Francisco Skid Row, and he even brought up all that would happen, and it has happened. It's exactly what was predicted, and in, in because the city council refused to hear uh, uh, plans or ask, we begged for sanctioned areas, even in June, I asked Mayor Adler to 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 identify areas that could be sanctioned and uh, provide resources, meet them where they are, uh, not where we expect or want them to be. Like not everybody wants to go to a shelter and abide by rules. Regardless of whatever shelter, there will be rules. There will be some compliance factor. Okay, not everybody wants to do that, regardless of the reasons where they're why they are where they are, and to. To, to evade that reality, it's, you lose credibility as a city. You, you basically are not doing the most basic responsibility as a, as a, a city official. That's to provide a safe, 
uh, area for everyone here in Austin. They have just, they haven't even done the basics. So, um, yeah, when you, when you say compliance or talking about it, you know, it makes me think about what is an alternative solution. So obviously number one goal is everyone should have a place to live home, right? That's obviously top level goal, but, but in thinking of short-term, right? Like, you know, even if we had all the funding to build homes right. for people or it would right. take time, um, are, is sort of what you're suggesting or, or thinking about could be a different alternative for the city is areas, designated areas where people can camp. I know this has been a, a, a place of controversy, right? Like the governor suggested, or I guess semi-created a, up an area where camping would be allowed or kind of wanted right. to facilitate, but it didn't seem to catch on really. Right. And you know, I, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I didn't vote for the governor. I'm a big time mm-hmm. Democrat and uh, I'm very pro, you know, left. But this here, the way that the council has done this, it's extreme left. You know, most people are in the middle and going to one extreme, you, you lose sight of where where businesses need you need their need your support and you know children and all all types of communities that are being heavily impacted by this just because we're having tunnel vision that you know they require a home or 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 everyone is wants to be housed in in a in some type of shelter and we know that is not the the truth and um, having sanctioned areas until these hotels that are being retrofitted, it will take years. They, they've even been admitted. It'll take years for that to happen. So in the meanwhile, just live them, leave, live them, live a life of where it's complete filth. That that is not a progressive stance. You know, that's that's virtue signaling, thinking that that is that is okay to do to them. To think we are helping them by letting them live in no man's land where there is no no odor or or uh, order or, uh, or, or, or police officers aren't able to provide assistance when uh, the structures are, are not safe, you know, and there's, while there's fires every day here and uh, every part of Austin has, you know, some type of fire happening, trash fires or in the, in the woods back here, there's a fire. Um, there will be dry season soon and I, I'm seriously concerned about this. Fire officials came from California to assess our fire safety, our fire wildfire risk. And the officials, when they spoke to our fire department, because I'm on the fire rise committee here, because this is really serious to me, said it, it's not an it's not a uh, if it's going to happen, it's when. They're surprised that it hasn't. We haven't had a, a tremendous wildfire yet, and that's what keeps me up at night. Number one is the children. I want children in all parts of Austin to have a, a, a safe, clean area and not see people defecating or using drugs when they're walking to school. This is not an exaggeration. This is actually happening. There's videos and you can, there, th- this is actually happening. Now it's not, uh, obviously not all homeless do this, but there is that element and we have to protect our children from that. And from sex, we need to know where sex offenders are, where they're registered. And we also need to have sanctioned areas for them because it will take time before there are housing type places for them. And in these sanctioned areas, you have resource providers that could come to them, meet them where they are and uh, have uh, places to store their belongings, places for to shower and connect, you know, with agencies. 
that's I think that's really important. And the time that I met with the mayor about this and a year and a half, we begged for sanctioned areas. He said, well, once you put these sanctioned areas, you you can't you'll it will be hard to get rid of them. So, you know, so let them live in this way in in in, in a place where they're just uh, in squalor, uh, rat infested, freezing to death. No, I think we can do better. And um, I, we, I definitely believe we can have better sanctioned areas than what the governor has placed. I mean, we can do this. It just, we have the resources, we have the land, we have the manpower, and we're just like you with your give a damn sign. We do care in Austin. I'm, I'm proud to be a Democrat. I'm proud of my stance. I'm proud that I, I have the ability to do this in Austin. And um, put in this where, uh, where we have to pick a side. This is not a side. This is just uh, demanding that our, our government work for us. It's not political. This has to do with whether or not the city council is just basically fulfilling their number one responsibility, keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. And they're not. And so, you know, when we talk about if this were to pass, you know, one thing I hear a lot from um, people who are opposed to Prop B is, you know, that reinstating a camping ban doesn't like help homeless people. You know, it doesn't, they'll still be homeless and then they'll just be forced to live the way they lived before, you know, still outside, but in hiding. Um, what do you, I guess, say to that? Or do you think there's a path forward of, you know, reinstating a camping ban and then advocating for another policy that does something else, you know, and I mean, provides, continues to provide service, or there's this fear, like if homeless people are not visible to us anymore, then as a community, we might not advocate for funding for services anymore. And we'll just forget about the problem. What, what kind of, right. I think how do you process that? Yeah, I think that's a false argument because they were not all living in the woods. Statesmen are statesmen and other uh, articles have been written on because of what Austin has done. It has become a magnet for other homeless individuals to 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 migrate here, and I, I do believe that Austin, we need to take care of those who are you know a paycheck away from 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 living on the streets, uh, from people who have mental health or drug addiction. There should be resources for them, um, but I do not believe that all of the thousands and it's doubled in a year have come just from the woods. That that another one, you know. You're, you, you're uh, just like we are worse. Um, Councilman Harris said, we, uh, you know, we're not worse off than we were a year ago. You know, you, you, it is be, you cannot uh, just, uh, you cannot expect people to believe that nonsense. You're losing credibility with the majority of people who are not Democrats or liberals. We're just people going to work trying to keep our kids safe, trying to go to the grocery store, not be mugged. You know, we're just normal people. And when you say things like that and that they were all living in the woods, when, when, when we know that's not true, that this has become a magnet for more and lifting the camping ban has caused, continuing to have it this way, we'll just double and double and double where we're, where, where we're at California numbers. And we don't wanna do that. We wanna have it the way it was before, 
police had compliance with that. They weren't arresting people for being homeless. They were able to use that as a, hey, you know, let's get you somewhere because you don't need to be on the street. There are resources for you. There are right now, there are open shelters that people can go to, but are vacant. Not, you know, obviously not all shelters, but there are resources there for them. Well, I don't believe there are any vacant shelters right now, right? Isn't that part of the problem or- No, that's not true. There are, there are, even the day- in June 2019, when the camping ban was uh, was lifted, uh, I, I I recommend that you use information requests or, or or for the public agencies like drug treatment. They walked out of there and chose to be on the streets. In fact, one of them I I met with the lady who uh, her brother was in drug treatment, mental health treatment, and he chose to live on the streets even though he was provided housing. And she blamed the camping vote. On, on, on the reason why her brother assaulted a young lady that was walking home after working in, in, in downtown um, in, in one of the restaurants there. You know, this, this is not a, you know, one, one, it happened just one time. This actually did happen. There were 20 to 50 people. Uh, I would, I, I've, I've, I've asked for someone to do an expose on this. How many have walked out of treatment because they would prefer to live on the streets then actually have to deal with compliance with actually rules following drug or mental health treatment. If, you know, I think in the folks that I've interviewed, you know, obviously I think some people would argue with that, that it's, right. a, it's a topic of debate, but if, 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 if that's well, true, if that's there, true though, if right, that's true, right. then what's the solution? You know, if, if, that's, so compliance. yeah, right. They're ticketing them. Or, if that right now, the memo on the streets is that we can do whatever we want and we will be okay because that we will have tents provided for us. We will have someone pick up our trash. We can poop and use, a, you know, use drugs where we want. That is a memo on the streets. What we, what we are saying is that there needs, to be, there needs to be rules in place. There needs to be a compliance factor. There needs to be sanctioned areas. There needs to be enforcement of these areas. There needs to be resources provided to the individuals who want them. And we need to meet them where they are, not where we think we would hope that they would be, because that's that's not going to happen. Not everyone is going to want to be housed because people walked out of housing when the vote was when the vote happened. And you're, you're saying this is something we can argue about. No, there's an easy way to find this. Uh, People in the news agency field can uh, do information requests and request this information. Did people walk out of drug treatment? Are there open beds now? And the last time I checked, there are. Can I can I ask? You know, I think one thing that um, this this idea of having areas where you know maybe camping will be permissible um, is you know something I've I've heard a lot of, and I've heard city council discuss it as well. Um, I think one. If we went that route, one problem or concern I hear is where, right? And and there and we've had a lot of issues right. before of even building up shelters, right? Right, and I think that has been kind of the pushback is that um, it seems nearly impossible to get a neighborhood to accept this, right? Um, so then, in essence, we can't do that. That's an argument I hear. Right. You know how how do you, you know, what's right. your kind so of take on that? For me, my take is that we should have had a, a, a homeless strategy officer before the council voted on this. We begged them to do this, to hire the officer first before they voted. That way this educated, experienced person could tell us how to roll out a plan, but they didn't do that. They ignored us 
And in fact, once they did hire her, she left a month later because she saw how much of a mess the council had created. And, you know, who wants to put their credibility on the line because of what the council did. Um, so saying that, yes, there are some, there will be some wherever you put them. But what, I, what is so upsetting to me is that we're a year and a half into this. This should have been done prior to voting, you know, in the within, they voted June, then they went off on break for summer break, July, August, and then immediately when they came back, the first thing they did was raise our taxes. So where are their priorities? Was it to find housing? Was it to find sanctionaries? No, it wasn't. It was just to unleash this, have everyone upset about this, and then, you know, have where we're like, okay, we're trying to fix it. Let's raise taxes. Let's get more resources. But they never had in the beginning a plan. That is really frustrating because it, this, this is why people don't trust government or trust government to actually work for the majority of citizens because things like this with such incompetency happen. I want to take a moment to talk about the compassion of it. You know, I think one thing that I've heard and I, um, I think there's a tendency for both sides of this issue to um, yell at the other side that they're, you know, they don't care about homeless people, right? That tends to be thrown out there. Um, I guess I want you to, I'd love for you to share a bit you mentioned you've talked to some, you know, a, a little bit about where you're coming from here. And is there a way that we can really create a solution where we are being kind, right? And um, to homeless people who live here and providing them with solutions while also not, right? you know, how can we make both work? Yeah, I understand. So I, on a personal level, you know, every job professional, my whole professional life, I've worked in social services. I was a probation officer. My, uh, before that, I grew up in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Dallas. My best friend was shot in the back by her boyfriend. Um, my, her mom was a prostitute. So I grew up in the poorest of poorest. And because of that, I'm sure had something to do with why I chose to work in social services. Um, being young and my parents, both immigrants, my mom was a hotel, uh, cleaned hotels and my dad was a welder. And we, my father brought home a homeless man and he stayed with us when we were young. So that was one of my first memories of like, even if we don't have anything, we can share what we have. That was, that was it for me. I understood that, you know, there is no excuse. And it's not just by writing a check to community first and saying you've helped the homeless. You actually have to put your actions behind it. And so I've, all my jobs have been in, in social services and also refugee families have stayed here. And I've, we also helped homeless uh, individuals that we felt that were on the right track because, you know, you, you have to be safe and you, you know, you have to assess, you know, now that we have a little boy uh, that whether or not it's how, how, what, what kind of uh, the risk analysis. Um, but there are obviously other options for that to help the homeless individuals. But um, I don't think people have demonized me for speaking out uh, uh, on this. However, I do think that um, they're refusing to ignore the the uh, the just the the reality of how 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 it is and how it's impacting uh, poor communities. Uh, the mm -hmm. community that I mentioned is one of the poorest areas in Austin, and um, it's not a coincidence that the by uh, organized effort, the encampments increased there. You know, two city council members have basically, you know, turned their eyes, turned their face to what has happened there. And, you know, these are parents that I have actually met with, not the city council members, because, you know, they haven't attended these meetings. 
and in Spanish, they have told me, hey, we've, we've asked for help. Some, you know, some of them are not, their status here is, uh, is they're not legal. So they're afraid to speak up. And if we are so concerned about homeless or, you know, ultra left or care about, you know, the rights of everyone, well, where are the rights for the children who do not have backyards to play in, who live in apartments? Why are these children not uh, seen as a priority in making sure that their schools are safe, that they, when they walk, they're not being victimized? Why is that not a priority? That to me is my priority. And whatever you want, whatever name you want to call me, that's fine because I know what I've done and I know what I'm going to continue to do because I know no one else is speaking out for this community. So that's mm-hmm. why I got started and why I, I, I'm okay with whatever names or whatever. But I do know that for me, there are priorities. And that to me is number one, that children are safe. Yeah. Yeah. And so you feel like if Prop B passes, that that can be a way forward to keep both children safe and also help homelessness, homeless individuals in Austin. Do you feel like both is possible by passing Prop B? Yes, ma'am. I do believe that if Prop B passes, there will be the compliance element on in there that there will be, okay, we, we need to have sanctioned areas that it will get the city council on the fast track to actually doing things in the temporary world of like finding sanctioned areas. They won't be, I'm sure you'll get, you're right. There will be backlash wherever they're put, but the city owns a lot of property, you know, uh, more than the state. And I know that we can do a better job in the state, even though, you know, they did provide sources, resources in a state trooper or whatever they done. We can do the same. Uh, we have the manpower. We have the intellect. So it just needs to be done now because right now, just in this for several more years of just waiting for housing, that's not cutting it. You know, mm-hmm. that's not right. All right. And just to close, if people want to learn more about your organization, what's a good website or way for them to follow along? SaveAustinNowPack.com. So that's Cleo Patricic and Save Austin Now. Next, we're going to hear from Marina Roberts, who is a member of Austin DSA and Homes Not Handcuffs, and has been a homelessness community organizer for a few years now. We're also going to hear from Seneca Savoy, who's chair of the Hands Not Homecuffs working group within Austin DSA. Homes Not Handcuffs is the primary advocacy group organizing against the passage of Prop B. Okay, here's that interview. So what we have is not a ban on camping. Um, it's a ban on rest, uh, which yeah. is you know kind of essential to the human condition. And, and that's like, it's not even a metaphorical thing, right? Um, we found, or I guess by we, the coalition, and in particular, um, grassroots leadership, uh, found that during the initial incarnation of this ordinance, which this is worse than, um, that most people experiencing homelessness were getting less than four hours of sleep a night, right? Wow. Um, and that was pretty much a, a straightforward consequence, right? Like, so my experience as a person um, who was homeless uh, my senior year of high school is that you would move constantly to hide right and that you would you would try to go to public places to sit down for a little bit you fall asleep you people come wake you up um when you when you are sleeping somewhere the cops find you and move you around uh right and so this gives you this sense of hyper vigilance um that literally takes rest away from you i I wasn't able to sleep for more than four hours at a time for like six years after i stopped being homeless um so yeah i wake up in the middle of the night, walk around for a little bit, try to go back to sleep. Right. The effect is long lasting. 
And I, Marina, do you want to add, did you have something to add on that? I just wanted to sort of emphasize the unavoidability of these, you know, of these consequences for folks who are living on the street. So Cynic already spoke to a little bit of it, but if you are a person who is unhoused, right, all of the shelters in Austin are full and they've been full and they've got long waiting lists. So truly your alternatives are, are nil. There's nothing else that you can do besides sleeping outside. And so whenever you're targeted by these ordinances, what happens is, uh, you know, a police officer gives you a citation for something that's unavoidable to your experience of poverty. And then you, you know, are usually unable to pay that citation because you're, you know, you're destitute, you don't have any money. And then that citation turns into a court date, which because of your situation in general, people are unable to transport themselves to, right? And then that court date turns into a warrant for their arrest. And so a 2017 city audit found that because of the fact that these ordinances resulted in criminal records for people who were living on the street, it actually erected just one more barrier to either employment or housing for people who might not have, you know, otherwise have had a criminal record at all. So um, in that way, in that specific manner, where basically, you know, what Prop B does is it sends us backwards in time to when we're really chasing our tail, but you know, like Seneca mentioned, this language is even more severe. It's even more punitive. So what we're, you know, what we're looking at is a, a proposal that will literally worsen this problem that we are actually making strides toward, um, you know, addressing with some of the more progressive policies that Austin City Council has enacted in recent years. Yeah, and it could be hard to see the progress, right? Um, because in actuality. Um, the city is housing more people each year than, than the previous year. Um, so, you know, we were in the thousands last year um, and that has been picking up, right? So there's a core um, narrative um, from Save Austin now that we have to do this in order to force the city to come up with real solutions or something like that. Um, the first thing to note is that if you're putting in place a policy that was in effect between 1997 to 2019, you should expect to see the same effect. Right. Um, and between 1997 and 2019, the population experiencing homelessness went up in Austin every year. Right. So we know that criminalization um, does not by disincentive stop people from being homelessness, which makes sense. This is not <clears throat> a choice problem. Right. This is a resource problem. Um, and second of all, um, it would make sense if you know, we had decriminalized homelessness and then investments in homelessness had plummeted. But of course, the opposite is true. Right, um, our investments have gone up significantly over time, uh, particularly in land banking, um, the acquisition of new permanent supportive housing, and we know that this, as a model, has worked in other cities. Right, uh, you can think of homelessness populations as being very similar to jail, uh, where like a lot of the growth is caused by the the people who are persistently in the population. Right, so uh, American. Uh, American prison populations primarily exploded uh, because of over-sentencing a violent crime, right? So there are, there are just more and more people who have been in jail for 20 years and they don't leave. And so that causes the, the prison population to explode, right? Uh, as opposed to like lots of people cycling in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, you have, we have people who are on disability uh, or who are maybe retired, uh, who are always on the edge of housing insecurity. And if you have a major event, like a global pandemic, then a lot right. of people enter that and it's more difficult for them to leave homelessness. Um, 
because it's harder for them to just pick up and get a job and their persistent costs are high, right? So even if you have a disability check, if you are unhoused, you're going to have to spend most of that on food, basic medical necessities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having resources dedicated, you know, what you would call like frequent users, um, right? People who, while living outside, are going to have to use more public services in order to not die. Um, getting them into housing is very effective, both at reducing total population experiencing homelessness, but also the cost to the public, right? Because if somebody has diabetes or a heart condition or something like that, if you only treat them at the point they have a crisis, that's extremely expensive, right? You have to do a lot of things to keep them from not dying. Whereas if that person is housed and you know where they live, you can give them their pills every day, right? right? Um, You can see if they're having uh, changes in their symptoms, this sort of thing. Uh, so we've seen in Salt Lake City, uh, New Orleans, and a few other places that uh, a very extensive focus on these housing first policies um, can have dramatic reductions in the total population, right? Especially as we get to the point where like Austin's service sector resuscitates, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, where the economy is, is boosting back up because of pent up demand, we should expect that the course that the city is on right now should be reducing the scope of homelessness Um, you know, as soon as people have jobs and stuff. So on the night of the city council vote, when we decriminalized homelessness successfully, um, one of our coalition's key organizers was a gentleman named Alvin, who has been, uh, you know, one of our city's uh, unhoused residents for a very long time, for years and years of his life. And he spoke about friends of his, multiple friends of his who uh, were unhoused like him, Um, and basically because they just grew so tired of getting harassed and getting tickets they couldn't pay and, you know, winding up in jail and, you know, uh, having more and more marks on their criminal records that they, that they couldn't avoid otherwise, these folks basically started to sleep in more and more remote places where they Mm -hmm. were more and more difficult for, uh, you know, the city, uh, either the city or nonprofit organizations that could provide them with services to reach, right? So that's a problem. But beyond that, because of the remoteness of these places, in many cases, they were also increasingly dangerous. So we're talking about sleeping in storm drains, sleeping along creek beds. Um, And, you know, there's certainly a point that you could make about whenever you have an encampment where there are no trash services that are accessible to you, a lot of that waste is going to wind up in our, in our, you know, waterways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, that's got an environmental impact that I do think people should be concerned about, but beyond that people would die. And that's what Alvin was testifying about that night. There's been, you know, re- reporting and coverage about that testimony that people can easily Google and read about, but, um, really a huge part of the motivation for the work that this coalition did was saving people's lives. Um, and, and Seneca's already spoken to this a little bit, right? But whenever people who are experiencing mental health crises have encounters with the police, they're extremely likely to be killed. Um, you know, in a global pandemic, whenever we know that the conditions in our jails are not adequately protecting people from uh, contracting the coronavirus and dying, sending people to jail for being poor is, you know, will be a death sentence to many people. So there are plenty of, you know, the, the motivations have certainly evolved with the times, but at, at root, you know, I think a lot of what motivated the coalition to do this organizing work was 
you know, like a desire to protect human dignity and human life. So yeah, and you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned homes, not handcuffs a few times. I just want to make it clear for folks in case they haven't heard of it. Um, what is that? Uh, who, who kind of is engaged in that effort? Yeah, so it's two things, right? The initial was a, a kind of hat for a coalition um, that included you know, groups like Grabbing Ground Theater, who really kicked things off um, with their uh, Tales of Sleepless Nights, kind of describing the dy- dynamic I was talking about before. And that was a, a theater troupe of folks experiencing homelessness. Um, grassroots Leadership, Austin DSA, Mobile Loaves and Fishes, um, Texas Fair Defense Project, um, Austin Justice Coalition, and so on. Um, and so that initial coalition uh, focused on both education of city council members, although I would say education was never really the problem there. Like everyone in city council always knew that criminalization didn't actually solve homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. There's a question of political will um, and political feasibility, right? Everything that we told them in one-on-ones, their internal auditors and the consultants they hired had already told them years in advance, right? Um, what we did do though was start raising awareness, right? Because the, the key dynamic with city council races is that the only time people hear about homelessness is when somebody complains about seeing somebody who's homeless, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that gets you a very specific class, race, and age demographic of people making those phone calls. Uh, and so if you're somebody taking those phone calls, you get a very specific view of what the city looks like. Um, and so what myself, Marina, Haye, uh, a few others started doing um, was canvassing the neighborhoods where those complaints came from, explaining the policies, right, and what the consequences of criminalization were, and then asking people if they shared that view to call in um, and tell them to stop criminalizing homelessness. Um, so that that was kind of the first wave of Homes and Handcuffs. Mm. And then now, of course, there's also a pack. Um, which does not include all the same organizations because some of those are C3s that can't engage in parts of the language. Uh, and the, the PAC is basically aiming to defeat recriminalization at the ballot on May 1st. I, I want to talk a little bit about the what we do moving forward or, or kind of the the arguments, I guess, of some of the of Save Austin now and some of these groups that are, um, you know, have put this on the ballot and not even just them, you know, I think there's some misconception. There's, there's definitely a lot of misconceptions out there. And I think there's a lot of people who, um, are now are seeing to them. It feels like we have more homeless people here in Austin. Like the problem is getting worse, right? Like, I think that's an argument you hear is it seems like, why do we have, it seems like there's even more homeless people and we're not doing anything to fix it or, or nothing is changing. And, and there's this argument that it's, it's inhumane that these people, you know, what they see is just a bunch of people living on the street and think, well, that's not good either. Like, this is not what we want. Is that what this policy is doing? Um, do you hear that from the public? And, and, and what do you say in response to that? You know, I think there's a lot of people who are in this middle area of like, well, I don't know. It, it seems like there's more homeless people out and they're not getting any services at all. You know, right. like maybe this policy isn't working. So whenever we talk about, you know, that that kind of dialogue, that's kind of the result of all the backlash that happened after we decriminalized homelessness. And then there was, like you mentioned, this immediate increased visibility of folks. And let's remember that those were folks who had always been here because it wasn't overnight that people traveled here from other cities to whatever degree that has happened, if it has at all. It was certainly not something that happened overnight. 
Um, and, you know, those were the folks who were coming out of the shadows, right? Those were the folks who had been sleeping in unsafe places who were coming to places that were relatively speaking more safe. And that was a win. That was a good thing because it meant fewer people dying. Um, so I think that in terms of, you know, like how do you how do you address that concern, that anxiety that people feel whenever they look at camps and they're like, well, we changed the policy and now there's all these folks who didn't seem to be there before. It's it's imperative that we clear up that misconception. Homelessness has not grown in Austin because we changed these ordinances. Homelessness has grown because we're in a global pandemic, because of mass unemployment, um, because, you know, frankly, housing in our city is not affordable enough. Um, wages don't keep up with housing costs going up. So those are all different problems that we have to tackle and we have to tackle them in good faith, right? We can't tackle them by lying to people, by being dishonest and by using the increased visibility of poor people as a political strategy to, you know, to win at the, you know, at the ballot or whatever it is. And I would add to that too, that it, it, with respect to how we have these conversations, right? Like how do we talk to people, especially if you get somebody who's, a, you know, who's kind of a tough nut to crack on, on it. And maybe it can be very bit, emotional, you know? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I've had some, you know, kind of conversations with folks who were a little, a little testy about it, you know, who had like, read, um, you know, news stories that kind of ran with the fear mongering that happened in the immediate aftermath of decrim. And, um, you know, I, I think it's tough. I think it's really tough to reach folks sometimes. But in my experience, I think one of the first things that's really crucial to do is to point out that we actually have a lot more in common with our neighbors who live on the street than we ever will with you know, like real estate billionaires or um, a lot of these folks who are kind of setting the conversation, who are trying to dictate the terms on which we talk about homelessness in this country. Um, I have a brother who is unhoused and I, you know, like I do a lot of this work because I'm motivated to ensure that people like him are treated like human beings and are recognized as, as being human beings. And I think part of what makes that so difficult for Americans is that if I ask you the question, right, like, where does your dignity come from? Like, where does your value as a human being come from? It's really tough, I think, to disentangle our own self-worth from, well, I mean, I've got to have a job. Um, I've got to generate, you know, profit for a corporation. That's like a part of my identity as an American. Like the first question you ask when you meet a stranger is, what do you do? Mm -hmm. and so our, our whole identity, I think, as, as an American, um, those identities are really deeply tied up in this idea that you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to earn your, your value as a human being by working. And so whenever we see folks who are unhoused, we have this assumption that they're not working, even though 25% of them are, um, and I think that what that does is we have to really muscle through that, you know, like, well, but they still deserve safety, right? Like they still deserve dignity and, and they still have value. Nobody can take that away from them. And for me, by doing this work, that has actually allowed me to feel my own self-worth in a way that I didn't before, because I was able to kind of connect to that, you know, that reality that our value as human beings is an immutable reality. It's an immutable fact. And no matter what hard times you fall on, no one can take that from you. And so, you know, what, what I'm trying to get at is just solidarity, right? What I'm trying to get at is that 
Um, I only have so much insulation from catastrophe myself. And frankly, I could wind up on the street one day just through a series of bad luck. And the reality is the overwhelming majority of us could do the same. So whenever we you know, stand with our neighbors who are on the street and we insist that they deserve a ladder out of that hole, you know, I, I feel like we're fighting for ourselves as much as we're fighting for them. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned that the humanity of it. I think that's important. It, there seems to be this um, instinctual reaction or, or I don't know, it, I guess it's built up by our culture of when you see a homeless individual on the street, you know, people are frightened, people associate it with crime. So people, you know, there's this immediate I don't know, I think fear or discomfort or something um, that really makes its way into then the policy conversations. You know, this assumption that if there are homeless individuals living in your neighborhood, that your neighborhood is now unsafe or that your neighborhood, you know, um, I, I, I just, I, I don't really know what my question is, but I guess I just wonder how you speak to that. You know, it just seems to be this odd phenomenon that we just say that or assume that in the policy, but um it, you know, but why, I guess, is the question, or how do we um, move past that? I think one very useful statistic to bring up here is that whenever you talk about crime that involves homelessness, overwhelmingly homeless individuals are more likely to be the victims of violent crime than the perpetrators of it, overwhelmingly. And the overwhelming majority of that crime that befalls people who are unhoused is perpetrated by housed people. So I think that's a and when you think about it, it's like not actually a surprising statistic. So I was, as I said, homeless um, senior year of high school and, you know, what would have been my freshman year of college. Um, and, you know, I was um, robbed repeatedly, assaulted repeatedly, sexually assaulted at least once. All the people who did those things to me were housed. So like, why is that? Uh, and why did the reverse not happen? So you know, crime, violent crime is primarily something that travels along social networks, right? Um, so usually um, people you get in violent crime with, you know, they're either domestic partners or people in your extended social network that you're like fighting over status with. Um, and there's some power imbalance there. So most people do not have casual interactions with people experiencing homelessness, right? Um, you know, violent crime in Austin, the, the biggest spike in was all in domestic violence. Well, obviously, homeless people are not sneaking into your home, dating you, and then beating you, right? Um, whereas, if you're experiencing homeless and you're interacting with a housed person, um, that is an imbalance of power. That person has money, shelter, food, uh, and they can give those things to you, right? They can let you sleep on the couch. Um, they can give you dinner, um, and they can use that as something over you, right? Um, so, if it is freezing outside uh, and somebody offers to let you sleep on their bed, and then they sexually assault you, you now have the choice of whether you wanna go back outside in the snow. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's similarly for all these things, right? Like domestic violence victims are, are, are a major point. The second, of course, is that if you look at the, the age segments of folks experiencing homelessness, you have a big chunk who are children, literal children, and then you have another chunk that are 55 and up. Uh, and obviously, um, I am not physically afraid of like an AARP member with diabetes. Um, you know, most people mm -hmm. peak at violent behavior around 19 and then it goes down off a cliff after 30. So like 50 year olds just don't fight people. Right. Um, 
and that's that's what your homeless population looks like. Um, so people just have it's the conflation of like horror with safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you, ex- you see people you don't expect to see, uh, and you associate that with unsafety. For folks who are passionate about this, who are um, concerned, who want to help our unhoused neighbors, what can they do? What do you recommend are some good ways for people to either get involved in the organizing or, um, you know, how can people help or, or, or improve the situation here? Yeah. So um, the very first thing, um, shameless plug, is that they should try to make sure the same fails, right? It'll be substantially harder um, if we're dedicating city resources um, towards, you know, locking people in jail. Um, and if people are actively fleeing from service providers, right? Um, so make sure May 1st um, that they lose. Um, you can find, you know, most of that information at noonprop2021.org. Um, we'll also have some mobilize.us links that we can share later. Um, we're doing phone banks, text banks, um, and a Canvas kickoff um, this Sunday with Julie Oliver, uh, where we're going to, you know, try and knock on a few thousand doors. Uh, and this is a low turnout election, so you're going to have to talk to your friends and talk to strangers uh, in order to make sure that, you know, Save Austin Now doesn't win. And they're going to try and spend about half a million dollars to win. Um, the second thing that I would do is get involved um, with some of the organizations that do this uh, direct service provision, particularly after May 1st, uh, when we can all breathe a little bit. Um, so those would include uh, organizations uh, like Mobile Loaves and Fishes, um, Community First, um, the Other Ones Foundation. I think those are, are excellent. Uh, and then local mutual aid groups, um, in particular Austin Mutual Aid uh, and Street Forum, who do a lot of service provision to people who are in camps right now. Uh, to give you an idea of the scope and scale of that, uh, Street Forum, I think, produces about 500 meals a day um, wow. for folks experiencing homelessness. Um, during the freeze, um, they went, they got people from camps into hotels, um, roughly 450 of them. Um, so I, this also is something I want to keep in, in mind. If these ordinances had been in place, right, those people would not have been in camps. And so people would not have been able to go up to the camps with vans and then transport them to hotels, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, they would have been, you know, in the woods and hundreds, I, I, I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of people would have died that week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's before you get into what breaking up camps would do during COVID, right? Um, and then finally, on the advocacy piece, um, I think that getting involved with organizations who are directly um, going to be dealing with the budget this summer is going to be very important, right? Uh, so some of the key players there are going to be Austin Justice Coalition, Grassroots Leadership, the Austin and Safer When Coalition, uh, and then Austin DSA. Um, you know, if if we don't see budget priorities that reflect actual investments in homelessness, then we shouldn't expect homelessness to go down. So that was Marina and Seneca of Homes Not Handcuffs. Now, before we close, I promised that I would provide a bit of elaboration and context behind some of the back and forth claims you heard in those previous interviews. So here it is. Number one. Uh, first, you ha- you heard Cleo Patricic of Save Austin Now, who supports the camping ban, say that a solution to homelessness includes passing Prop B and then directing homeless Austinites to designated campgrounds and shelters. She also advocates for the city to spend more money on homelessness services. There's been a lot of debate over this designated camping area concept, so I just wanted to dive a bit deeper into it and lay it all out for you. The pro-prop 
Prop B folks point to places like Haven for Hope in San Antonio as a successful model for how designated camping could work. Haven for Hope is a 22-acre campus with 17 buildings, 250 employees, and 1,700 residents. The campus includes housing, on-site services, and a fenced-in courtyard where people can legally camp and even gain access to things like bins for their belongings and healthcare services. According to a 2019 KVU story, it costs about $20 million a year to operate. Haven for Hope, um, with about $4.5 million coming from the city and the majority of funding from private donations. So it's kind of a collaborative effort. Um, Governor Greg Abbott has also created a version of designated camping at a state-owned facility in southeast Austin. Known as the Esperanza Community, it's home to about 150 people who primarily live outside in tents. Uh, Porta-potties are available on site, and the local nonprofit organization, The Other Ones Foundation, provides services like internet, mail access, and a community kitchen. In November, The Other Ones Foundation launched a $2 million fundraising campaign to build 200 temporary tiny homes at that site as well. So as you heard in our earlier interview, uh, Cleo and many other Prop B supporters have suggested that these existing designated camping areas and perhaps additional ones created by the city of Austin could help to answer the question, if we reinstate the camping ban, where will the homeless go? At least until permanent housing can be offered to them. Um, but this idea of designated camping is not universally accepted. Um, one of the issues that those opposed to Prop B have raised include the location. As in, if the city were to create its own designated camping areas, where would they actually go? Um, neighbors tend to be extremely opposed to these, and some advocates feel like, realistically, it's virtually impossible to create them for that very reason. Or it forces the designated camping areas to be placed in areas so far outside the city that it becomes difficult for the homeless to access essential services. Take the Esperanza community, for example. One criticism of it is that it's far away from the center of town and isn't within walking distance of anything like a grocery store. As a February 2020 article from the Texas Tribune put it, uh, quote, being stuck without transportation was the primary complaint from shelter residents. Reynolds said that they don't have access to grocery stores, medical care, or fresh clothing because of the camp's distance from Austin's urban core. The camp is a two-hour walk from downtown, end quote. Um, another concern raised by those opposed to Prop B is the cost of creating designated camping areas. Um, here's what Councilmember Greg Kassar said when I ran the idea by him. Quote, uh, the city could designate land as the governor did, um, but there are real challenges associated with picking a couple concentrated areas and trying to force everyone to be there. Once you factor in plumbing, shelter, laundry, etc., then you might as well buy a hotel and convert it into housing as we are doing. Uh, but more tiny homes, shelters, permanent housing, hotels, etc. should all be in the mix of solutions for homelessness. End quote. Um, I also asked Echo about the designated camping area concept, and here's what they had to say. Quote, the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness urges caution to communities considering implementing designated camping areas because they do not end homelessness for people and can make the scope of the issues appear smaller. In addition, USICH advises <clears throat> uh, sanctioned encampments are difficult to maintain and manage, they can be costly in time and money, and can be difficult to shut down once they're established. That said, City Council has recently begun discussing this as an option, and they are not inherently bad, but they must be tied to housing and supportive services. No encampment, sanctioned or otherwise, is a strategy to end homelessness if not tied to housing and supportive services. End quote.
So some of those opposed to Prop B are not outright opposed to the idea of designated camping areas, but they don't seem to see them as the best solution, and they definitely don't want to see them paired with a reinstating of the camping ban. So that's kind of the debate there. And just to make one more thing clear on this, passing Prop B does not automatically create additional designated camping areas um, or provide additional funding for existing camp areas. It merely reinstates our old bans. So that's not to say that any of those things couldn't come later, but they're not technically part of the proposition. Okay, now on to number two, um, the other another issue I wanted to elaborate on a bit is that there's also been a lot of discussion about the prevalence of crime among the ho- amongst the homeless community. So here's what we know. And in February 2020, the Austin American Statesman reported that violent crimes with suspects who were experiencing homelessness rose 10% last year, the largest increase in the past five years. However, they also found that overall violent crimes in Austin saw a small rise in 2019, Austin police arrested 3,902 people for violent crimes, an increase of less than 1% from the year before, police data show. Of those arrests, 392 suspects, or 10%, were experiencing homelessness. And of those suspects, 282, or 72%, were accused of a violent crime against another homeless person. Violent crimes with both with both homeless suspects and victims increased 23% last year, police data show. But with the exception of 2018, those types of cases have been going up since at least 2015 when they shot up 37% from the year before. So that was before we made any changes to our homelessness ordinances. Also in February of 2020, the statesman reported that Austin Assistant Police Chief Joe uh, Chacon um, said, quote, the correct message and really what reality is, is that when we are looking at our violent crime incidents, especially in the downtown area, that a small minority of them involved an individual experiencing homelessness, end quote. But in that same article, the statesman shared an Instagram post from the Round Rock Honey Company, which announced that it would no longer be selling at the downtown farmer's market because of the, quote, unpredictable and unsafe behavior by vagrants and mentally ill individuals at the market, end quote. And then in October of 2020, CBS Austin reported that 14% of violent crime in the city involves someone who is homeless, but police reports describe most of that as homeless on homeless. And less than 3% of the violent crimes in Austin had a homeless suspect and a non-homeless victim. Okay, so now on to number three, which is the final issue that I want to provide some additional info about, and that's shelter availability. Again, when I spoke to Cleo, she said that there is shelter availability in Austin, indicating that if we reinstate the camping ban, there is, in fact, somewhere for the homeless to go. Uh, But when I spoke to the hands not the homes not handcuffs folks, they basically said the opposite is true. Um, So what's going on here? Again, I pose this question to the team at ECHO, who pointed me to the federally mandated annual housing inventory count um, of a variety of different homelessness services available in Austin. So basically what they do is they look and see like how many beds are available. According to the ECHO team, they're still finalizing the 2021 numbers, but here's what they saw in 2020. And uh, just to let you know about this, the numbers are basically a snapshot view collected from one night in 2020. So there is some variability here, but this is a snapshot look. Okay, here's what Echo says. Quote, what we saw in the 2020 HIC 
was of the 757 emergency shelter beds, 674 were full. That's a utilization rate of 89%. If you combine all the various program types, permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, emergency shelter, transitional housing, safe haven, and other permanent housing, our system was at 91% capacity, or 2,989 out of 3,285 beds. Overall, on that night of the 2020 HIC, there is not enough shelter or housing for everyone who needs it, end quote. Um, and Echo also pointed to a city report, which was done by an outside consultant, which was released last summer, uh, which said that Austin needs thousands of new units to meet the current need. Um, KXAN also just published an article looking into the available shelter space in Austin and found that, um, once again, using those housing inventory count numbers, that there were between 346 and 356 unoccupied beds for those experiencing homelessness from a variety of different programs. So that includes the emergency shelters, the temporary housing, the permanent supportive housing. Um, so 346 to 356 compared to an estimated unsheltered Austin homeless population of 1,574. So some available space, but according to ECHO, far from enough. In that same KXAN article, they actually asked the question directly, quote, if proposition passes in May and camping became a criminal offense, would there be enough beds for people camping downtown to go if they were asked to move? And Matt Mullica, again, who's that executive director of ECHO, says the answer is an emphatic no. End quote. <laughs> um, so again, here's what Cleo Patricic says about that. Quote, the sanctioned campgrounds are already funded and functional including one set up by the state of Texas several months ago with sanitation and security. Non-compliers are certainly going to be made to leave the areas they're sleeping in now, the public spaces that we all cherish and don't believe should be permanent encampments. This is a compliance issue. End quote. So, <laughs> at the risk of making this a five-hour-long episode, which it easily, easily could be, I'm going to try and wrap things up a bit now. Um... I think one of the things that's most frustrating about this conversation is that for many Austinites, what we really want is just for no one to have to be homeless. And what I've gotten from talking to a lot of people about this is that a lot of Austinites are in search of a more nuanced and solution-oriented conversation than simply voting yes or no on a ballot allows for. Despite that, we do have an election coming up and a decision will have to be made and it will impact the way we as a city move forward in our response to homelessness. That all being said, I thought I'd share a few quick updates about things the city of Austin is currently working on in the homelessness arena to give you some more context there. Um, so back in February, city council passed the HEAL initiative, which is kind of like a hybrid version of the designated camping area concept. It selected four high-risk camping areas near roadways and libraries where funds will be directed to meet individually with the people living at those camps and provide them with pathways to housing. After that is complete, camping will then be banned in those areas with the idea that the program could then expand to other camps throughout the city. So that's one idea that's being worked on. Also, at the end of March, a coalition of local organizations, including the City of Austin, Austin Justice Coalition, Downtown Austin Coalition, um, the Austin Chamber of Commerce, they all got together to hold a weeks-long summit 
to establish immediate and long-term strategies, timelines, and accountability to develop a comprehensive community-led plan to address homelessness. Um, Not a lot of results from that summit have been released yet, but stay tuned because more info is likely to come out. Okay, that's finally, that's it. That's the end of our show for today. Um, But be sure to stay tuned because next week we'll be releasing our podcasts on propositions C and D. And you can find podcasts of our show, as always, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Um, One quick friendly request on this. If you like our show and find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Um, It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. As always, you can learn more about The Austin Common by visiting our website at theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. This show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM.